Coming Up is a podcast brought to you by the dedicated and diverse volunteers at 3CR. Just a quick message before you get there. For the month of June, we're asking listeners to donate to the station to help keep us going. In 2023, we're asking our community to stay tuned, stay radical. We rely on the generous donations of the community to survive. Go to 3cr.org.au slash donate and show your support for community-owned and community-run media. Thanks for your support and happy listening. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith, and this week I am joined by Kira Butler, who is a senior editor at Mother Jones. Thanks for joining us, Kira. Thank you so much for having me. I guess just to begin with, could you tell us a little bit about what your beat is and how you found yourself upon it? Yeah. So at the beginning of the pandemic, I was reporting a lot on COVID, as many of us were. And I began to notice a lot of overlap between various conspiracy theories surrounding COVID, surrounding vaccines, and then after that, surrounding education. And as those Venn diagrams became more and more apparent to me, I just sort of went went down the rabbit hole and have been doing that work ever since. Doing your own research. <laughs> right, exactly. One of the organizations that's at the heart of that nexus is a group called Moms for Liberty. Last year, you attended their conference. Could you tell us a little bit about what you found was animating the Moms for Liberty? So I first became aware of the Moms for Liberty. I think the pandemic had been going on for a while, and I had been reporting on on parenting groups, which had become sort of a clearinghouse for all kinds of conspiracy theories. You would see in these groups, somebody would post a very innocuous question about car seats or something, and then you would see in the comments that somebody would sort of take over the comments with something about vaccines, and then you would have people going from there to critical race theory in being taught in classrooms to all kinds of, of educational conspiracy theories. And I began talking to people mostly in what we call in the United States, red states, states, states that are majority conservative. And people began to tell me about what was happening at school board meetings. School boards in the United States, they have regular meetings. They're always open to the public, but Typically, they're pretty poorly attended and pretty boring. These are places where things like budgets are decided. And you might have some people show up to say, to say we, we really do need a new gym and you should spend the money on that. Or they, they might there might be a group of students who want support for an activity. But these are, these are typically pretty sleepy meetings. Well, in uh, 2020, 2021, these meetings began to draw big crowds. And it became clear that there were conservative activists who were urging people to go to these meetings to protest mask mandates, to protest 
certain kinds of curriculum. They started talking about critical race theory, which was kind of a, a conservative dog whistle for anti-racism curriculum that was that they, they, they saw as being a problem in the schools. They were talking about teachers being groomers, which was their way of saying that they didn't like the fact that some of the, in, the curriculum was inclusive of LGBTQ people. So I became aware of this happening at, at school boards. And the more that I talked to people, the more that I, I heard about this one group that was pretty new at the time. It was called Moms for Liberty. It was started in Florida. And it was growing rapidly online, mostly in Facebook. So the more I looked into Moms for Liberty, the more I realized that this group had deep ties to the Republican Party and to really powerful conservative funders. So I decided to go to the conference. And that was interesting. I, th- I found it fascinating that James Lindsay, one of the sort of the architects of the CRT scare, was there, but talking about ESG instead of CRT, which stands for Environmental, Social and Governance. Could you tell us a little bit about what ESG is and why it's sort of become this new conservative boogeyman? So in this context, James Lindsay was talking about all of these acronyms are very hard to keep straight, but he was talking about those that concept of ESG, which was laid out by the World Economic Forum, which is a kind of a a boogeyman in in and of itself for some of these right-wing groups. They've long been very suspicious of the World Economic Forum and especially its leader, Klaus Schwab. In, In this context, James Lindsay at this conference was talking about how ESG goals became embedded, supposedly, in social emotional learning curriculum that's that is implemented at public schools. So his his hypothesis was that the World Economic Forum was trying to indoctrinate children into accepting the the new world order of socialism by infusing the social emotional learning classes with ESG values. Social emotional learning is a curriculum that many public schools have implemented over the last decade or so. It is an evidence-based curriculum. It helps children learn how to be part of a group, how to regulate their emotions. And there is some documented a correlation between academic achievement and the social-emotional learning curriculum. But conservative groups have kind of latched on to social-emotional learning as a, a tool of indoctrination. And that's sort of what James Lindsay was talking about in his session at Moms for Liberty Conference. I mean, not to be too snide, but you can sort of see why conservatives <laughs> might not want children to be learning how to get along and, and work in groups. <laughs> well, it, it was kind of wild. I went to, it, this wasn't the James Lindsay session, but I went to a kind of a breakout session where we were talking about social emotional learning at the conference. And one of the leaders seemed absolutely incensed that one of the values being taught was altruism. This idea that you are part of a community and that what can I do to help my community? This I'm paraphrasing here, but this breakout session leader was saying, I thought I was sending my kid to school to learn how to do academics. I didn't, now my kid is responsible for helping the community. That doesn't seem fair. And just that very idea of part of education is learning how to be in community with other people. That seemed to be offensive at its core to these folks at Moms for Liberty. The thing that I sort of found interesting about this ESG scare, like the CRT scare, is that they're sort of 
they're railing against something that's not happening. Like, like ESG is this cultural Marxist march through our institutions, but in reality, ESG is just greenwashing, basically. I, I, I felt some sympathy for Elon Musk when he got knocked out of some ESG index and said, ESG is evil, it's the devil, because Tesla is one of the, the ultimate greenwashing <laughs> operations. <laughs> absolutely. Yes, absolutely. So ESG is a tool for companies who want to take attention away from the fact that they're polluting and emphasize what what they're supposedly doing to help the environment or to help the community. This is, as you said, greenwashing or corporate spin. And so there's a there is a an element of of truth to the fact that ESG there's some shady stuff going on, but it's it's different from what James Lindsay and his his ilk are accusing them of. <laughs> One of the consequences of the the CRT scare has been book bans across the US, but particularly in places like Florida. I thought it was really interesting. I think just in the past few days, as we're recording, there have been more books about the Holocaust that have been taken off school shelves. And yet at the same time, it was only a few years ago that Ron DeSantis was in Jerusalem uh, proclaiming that Holocaust education will be mandatory in Florida. So I was just curious about how they're squaring that circle. Yeah, that's that's pretty interesting. And I will say that I am not an expert on everything that's happening with American attitudes toward Israel right now. It's pretty interesting and I'm looking at it, but I don't feel like I can really speak to that. What I will say, some of the far-right influencers that I have been looking at, I have noticed that they are explicitly expressing anti-Israel, anti-Semitic sentiments in a way that seems much more forceful, emboldened, shameless than anything you would have seen even a year ago. Kira, a lot of people in Australia, at least, have started to die suddenly lately. I mean, people are always dying suddenly. That's an accurate description of any death, but especially once clickbait journalists here realise that by using the phrase die suddenly, you were guaranteed to bring in a lot of extra traffic from anti-vaxxers, even if the death was completely unrelated to vaccines or even COVID at all. You recently looked at the origin of the died suddenly meme. Could you tell us about where you found it came from? Yeah, so I would say it it came from a few different places, but probably the biggest push that that movement got was from a far-right live streamer named Stu Peters, who he lately has been making documentaries. He's been very busy just in the last year or so. He's made three documentaries, and the, the latest of those was a movie called Died Suddenly that posited that people who had gotten vaccinated against COVID were dying from blood clots and that the government was trying to cover this up. So what you really saw after this movie came out, this movie was much more popular than any of the previous movies that he's made. Those movies stayed mostly in kind of the far right sphere that he is most popular in, but died suddenly really kind of crossed over into the mainstream. And you saw the phrase died suddenly trending on Twitter a lot. Every time somebody famous died, that there would be a lot of speculation and the hashtag would start trending again. But what you really were seeing was people speculating that deaths of famous people were caused by the vaccine when actually they had nothing to do with that. In my piece about Stu Peters, I told the story of there was an athlete who had died and right when the news of his death broke, people were suggesting on Twitter that it was because of the vaccine. They were using the died suddenly hashtag. 
And it turned out that the reason that he died, he was in a car accident. There was a wrong way driver. But that didn't stop people from claiming that his death had been caused by this vaccine. There was another athlete in that story who hadn't even died. And then when he came out and said, look, I'm still here. It's, oh, no, it's a deep fake. Yeah, that's right. That was Damar Hamlin, an NFL player who collapsed on the field. And he made several videos assuring his fans that he he had had this very serious event that had nothing to do with the vaccine, but that he's very much alive. And people in, in the far right were saying that's a deep fake or that's an actor. But it seems like there is no amount of evidence that will convince these folks that something else might be going on besides the vaccine. You also look at some of the people that Stu Peters has surrounded himself with. There's a this range of far-right personalities. One of them was Lauren Witzke, who's a former QAnon proponent. I thought it was really interesting that she no longer believes in QAnon as in someone who's coming in to save the day and put a stop to satanic cannibal child abuse rings. She still believes that the rings are happening. She just doesn't think President Trump is going to necessarily come in as a super spy behind the scenes and stop it. I also noticed looking at some of Lauren's social media, she's now a flat earther. As these people sort of become more and more detached from reality, are they losing some of their influence or is that not really having an impact? That is a really good question. I think that's really hard to answer Hmm. because what you have more and more is this increasingly fragmented social media ecosphere where people are essentially preaching to the choir more and more. You can have people who have hundreds of thousands of Twitter followers or Instagram or TikTok followers. And that by numbers alone, they would seem to be hugely influential, but their influence really is confined to that sphere. It's not like Lauren Witzke, Flat Earther, is convincing people who I have in in my feed that the earth is flat. As, as more and more people are on social media, it just seems like there are these diverging paths and they're just getting farther and farther apart. You also recently attended the COVID litigation conference. Could you tell us a little bit about how anti-vaccine activists increasingly becoming embroiled in, I guess, lawfare? Yeah. So this was a conference that was funded largely by Steve Kirsch, who is a very interesting guy. He was a an early Silicon Valley entrepreneur. He helped found a, one of the first search engines. He was a, a major player behind the, the first computer mouse. So he made a bunch of money. And he's, he's long been a philanthropist, and he used to give generously to, to Democrats. At the beginning of the pandemic, he was really interested in figuring out whether there were any existing drugs that would help prevent or cure COVID. So he put a bunch of his own money, I think it was more than a million dollars, into this kind of early treatment research And at first, he had a really impressive group of scientists who he was working with on this. And then somewhere along the way, he, I guess he just started listening to the wrong people. And he became convinced that the COVID vaccines, of which he got two, were dangerous. And from there, I I spoke to him at length at this COVID litigation conference. 
And he has now become a full-on anti-vaxxer. He believes that routine childhood vaccinations are dangerous. He told me he now believes that nobody should ever vaccinate their pets. So he was the one behind this conference. And during his speech, his keynote address at this conference, he expressed very strongly that he believes that all of all of the pharmaceutical companies who have been involved, all of the hospitals who have refused to give people unproven treatments like ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine, that they 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 should be sued and they should have to pay for what he sees as these grave and harmful mistakes. The conference was attended by lawyers who it was very clear to me listening to their speeches that they saw themselves as the underdogs. They saw themselves as this was like a David and Goliath thing. And they they were helping the little guys who had been denied ivermectin or their family members had been denied ivermectin or you know their kids had been forced to wear masks at school. They were helping these people sue whatever it was, the school district, the hospital. And it what was interesting about it to me was that it could have been seen as a very fringy thing. But there have been a bunch of recent victories by this movement, this so-called medical freedom movement. And what they've been doing is something called forum shopping. So they've been looking for these Trump-appointed judges who they know will be very sympathetic to this medical freedom activism that they're doing. One of the things that they're very interested in doing is making vaccination status into a protected class. So it would be something like race that you can't discriminate against. And they've been successful in doing that in, in one state, that's Montana. And there, there are a few other states that are, are trying to do that. So one of, the, one of the areas that they've been really successful in is suing the federal government over vaccine requirements. So they have had a few victories where they've gone in front of these Trump-appointed judges, and the judges have ruled that these federal employees do not have to be vaccinated. There have been some efforts to prevent the spread of misinformation around COVID, and the medical freedom activists have been trying to prevent those efforts from actually being successful. So in California, there's been a a law that prohibits doctors from spreading misinformation. And their medical freedom activists, including some of the folks that were at this conference are suing California over that law. The Children's Health Defense, which is the anti-vaccine organization that was founded by presidential hopeful Robert F. Kennedy Jr., has been has sued a few media outlets over their efforts to stop the spread of misinformation around COVID. So these it's while these people can seem like they are very much operating on the fringe, they are having some legal successes, which of course can set precedents for future legal successes. In Australia, I guess when there have been attempts to make similar legal efforts, they've been a little held back a little bit by the the, the people who are putting them forward. The people pursuing anti-vax lawfare were anti-vaxxers and maybe they didn't always have the best grasp of the law and they weren't always the best equipped to pursue these cases. Is it the case that because you've got this sort of more friendly, these friendly jurisdictions that have been created by Trump appointments, that people who maybe have a bit more of a clue and in it for a buck are more able to get some of these cases up? Yeah, absolutely. And it's kind of a 
it's a snowball effect, right? It's like once you have one victory, it's pretty easy to point to that and say, well, this judge ruled in favor of these medical freedom activists in this case. So that is legal precedent for this other thing that I'm trying to do. So, and that's exactly what they want. This conference that I went to was basically a bunch of lawyers strategizing about how to make this movement into a mainstream thing rather than a fringe thing. You also write in the piece about the way that hospital boards, I guess, are being approached in the same way that school boards were being approached by the likes of Moms for Liberty. How open or how vulnerable are hospital boards to this same sort of entryism? Yeah. So, I mean, if, if school board meetings used to be really sleepy, hospital board meetings were like basically in a coma. I mean, these were really things that nobody wanted to go to. But what happened recently in Sarasota, there's the Sarasota Memorial Hospital is a safety net hospital, which in the United States means that it's a hospital that primarily serves marginalized people, people who don't have health insurance, people who don't have great access to medical care. So this is this was a really important hospital in in the community. And some some medical freedom activists who had a connection to the Sarasota School Board conservative activists decided that they were going to try to get some spots on this hospital board. And they did. They they were able to do this. And they worked pretty closely with a group that had also worked with the, the local school board. And they were able to pack those hospital board meetings with medical freedom activists. These meetings that usually had zero people in attendance were having earlier this year, like hundreds of people showing up and claiming that this hospital had denied their loved ones ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine. So this it, it's scary that this is happening at, at, at hospitals, but it also points to this very effective strategy that these folks have seized upon, which is taking over boards of public institutions. It's happening also at libraries, which some of them have elected boards and some of them don't. But this is they have hit upon this, this very effective tactic. One parallel I noticed in your articles on the Moms for Liberty conference and the COVID litigation conference is at Moms for Liberty, you were asked where you were from and you said your Mother Jones. And perhaps there was an assumption on the part of the people asking, oh, Mother Jones, we're all moms here. That's great. (laughs) Whereas at the COVID litigation conference, you said you were from Mother Jones and the PR guy for the conference is, oh, great. I love Mother Jones. I I worked on the Obama campaign. (laughs) Is there an uh, element of uh, the crunchy left which has sometimes been associated with maybe anti-vax feeling prior to the pandemic. Are those people coming into this COVID conspiracy space? Yes and yes and no. There's there's always been the anti-vaccine movement. There's always been this this kind of place in the back where right and left meet. And it's in this kind of libertarian space where both far left and far right people believe that the government shouldn't be telling them what to do. And the pandemic really made this the meeting of left and far left and far right. It just supercharged that. So you see, you do see a lot of a lot of kind of crossover. Last year or the year before, even I wrote a piece that had to do with anti-GMO groups. These are groups that believe that genetic modification is dangerous. And I wrote about how these groups were all of a sudden really seeming to be obsessed with the the lab leak theory, and that they were embracing some of the talking points, some of the very xenophobic talking points that very 
far right groups had been putting forth about the origins of the pandemic. So that was, it's just an example of how this pandemic has really radicalized people on both ends of the political spectrum in a way that they actually are coming together more and more. Something that I think is really interesting is the fact, like I've been covering the anti-vaccine movement long before the pandemic, and we used to think about anti-vaccine as being centered in these ultra-liberal enclaves. These are places like Marin County, California, Boulder, Colorado, places that are so extremely solidly blue um, that had, and these places typically had like the lowest vaccination rates. Well, what was really interesting in the pandemic was that Marin County, California had some of the highest COVID vaccine rates. So here was a place that you really, you saw people changing their beliefs about vaccines during the pandemic, which to me, that's, that seems pretty significant. Hmm. You've also looked at the global anti-vaccine movement, although it it's a global anti-vaccine movement that sort of seems to be powered and amplified by American <laughs> disinformation outfits. Could you tell us a little bit about, I, I thought it was really interesting in your piece on the global anti-vaccine movement that there was anti-vaccine content that was being pushed into places like Africa by people like the Russians, but at the same time, there was pro-vaccine content being pushed. It all just seemed to be about sowing discontent. Yeah. And I think that when you're talking about Russian disinformation, that really is the goal. The folks that that study Russian disinformation campaigns point to the, the strategy of like, throw the spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks. They These are bots and actual people who are pushing dozens, a dizzying number of different narratives and conspiracy theories, memes all at once. And the idea is really to, to so to, the idea is really to turn people against each other, to destabilize, to, de- to destabilize. Kira, I guess just finally, over the course of the pandemic, we've developed vaccines and mitigations so that we're in year four now and things aren't quite as bad as they were in year one. At the same time, as you've noted through all of your work, we're in the, the midst of this infodemic. Do we, have we developed the tools that we need to tackle misinformation and disinformation over the course of this, or are we still sort of lagging behind, do you think? I know that like whack-a-mole is an overused analogy, but it really does feel that way with with misinformation and disinformation. There, there are people who are doing really good work figuring out how to prevent the spread of misinformation and disinformation, but every time we solve one problem, another one crops up. We've, we've watched this happen in real time as social media platforms have gotten really good at labeling posts and banning people who are spreading misinformation. But then these, these folks figure out ways around that. So I think the answer is yes and no. Like we are learning more about disinformation, but at the same time, the purveyors of disinformation are also learning. Kira, thanks so much for joining us. If people want to read more of Kira's work, she is the senior editor at Mother Jones and you can find her on Twitter at Kira Eve Butler. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. Well, folks, that's our show. We'll be back next week. See you later.
ready to add your support during our annual Radiothon. Stay tuned, stay radical. 3CR Radiothon Fundraiser, June 2023. To donate, call the station 0394 8377 or donate online 3cr.org.au. 3CR Radiothon 2023. Stay tuned, stay radical. Please. Pick up your phone while you're driving and it's a $555 fine and four demerit points. Distracted drivers can be caught anywhere, anytime. A message from the TAC. Drive safely for everyone. A 3CR supporter. 